0: Well, friends, as we continue through this hour of worship, a reminder, we're in the middle of a sermon series called Summer in the Spirit in the summer of 2022. Many people who are joining us through this series have missed some of them. If you have, you can go back to the very beginning of this sermon series on our YouTube channel, but also to know that as we track through each of these nine weeks in this sermon series, we're taking a look at one thing from nine different angles. And that one thing is the fruit of the Spirit, You know, it's interesting, in my pastoral ministry, I often hear people mispronounce that phrase. In fact, there was a long season of my life I mispronounced that phrase. I used to say fruits of the Spirit, but the word fruit, karpos, is a singular word. And it's this reminder that something supernatural happens when you put your faith and trust in Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. As Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There is this organic growth that happens as we abide in Christ where the Spirit grows a singular fruit in our life that has, like I said, nine different facets, nine different attributes, nine different sides to it. In fact, we find this list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. And in a moment, I'm going to read out the New Revised Standard Version. Uh, The NRSV has actually been updated in the last number of years. So some of you, as you go to that, perhaps on your, your tablet or if you have a printed copy, as I do, this is the newer version. But many people have memorized it in the kind of older NRSV. I'll read that version today. And the reason why we're going through this sermon series is to give us a picture of what our life can look like. When we allow the Holy Spirit to have room to grow in us, to manifest in us, to have the freedom to transform us to be more and more like Jesus. On one hand, we are saved by faith alone. It's not by works. But as the writer of the book of James says, uh, our faith without works, it's dead. Martin Luther grappled with this. How could Paul say it's faith without works, but James say, no, it's faith and works. Well, Martin Luther said this. He says, We are saved by faith alone, but our faith isn't alone. Out of the overflow of our faith comes works. And yet, these works aren't something that we do in our own strength. Uh, they're not things that we do to earn God's love, but out of the overflow of what God is doing in and through us. And in a sense, we are instruments in the hands of our maker. So let me read for us Galatians. 522, and then we'll dive right into this week six on the topic of goodness. By contrast, as it is written by Paul in Galatians 522, by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Again, this passage begins with the phrase, by contrast. It's important to understand the context in which Paul is writing this list of the singular fruit of the Spirit. If you go above, verse 16, this is the context here. Let me read this as well. Keep those Bibles open. It says this, "'Live by the Spirit, I say, "'and do not gratify the desires of the flesh, "'for what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, "'and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh, "'for those are opposed to each other "'to prevent you from doing what you want.'" But if you were led by the Spirit, you were not subject to the law. Now the works, plural, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God." This, my friends, is the reign of God's word. And as we say every week, thanks be to God. Okay, again, I just want to reiterate this point. We're going to be doing this every single week in our introduction. Uh, there is this contrast where the Apostle Paul is talking about the flesh and the spirit. And elsewhere he writes in his book to the church in Rome. In Romans, he says, you know, there's this truth. As a follower of Jesus, there's things that I want to do that I don't do and there's things that I don't wanna do that I still do. And this is a great reminder that if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're not instantly a perfect person overnight. There's still struggles, there's still temptations, uh, there's still addictions, there's still weaknesses. And the apostle Paul goes on in the book of Romans, he says, it's like there's this war within me. A great reminder that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there is still a journey of discipleship, a journey of faith. You're already saved. God looks at you through Jesus Christ and says, you are forgiven, you're my beloved child. As it says in Philippians 1, 6, the God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion of the day of Jesus Christ. You can't lose your salvation if you've genuinely put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You are justified by faith. That's a legal term. God looks at you and says, not guilty. The perfect record of Jesus is given to you while Jesus takes your broken record of sin upon himself on the cross. And yet, for me, for the Apostle Paul, for you, if you've said yes to Jesus, the rest of your life, there is, in a sense, a war within you. And the sooner you can acknowledge that, the sooner you can kind of drop the pretenses and stop uh, putting on a facade that you have it all together. Things are great, and things are good, and you're, you know, everything's under control. But the moment you drop those things and say, like Paul did, this wretched person that I am, who will save me? from this war within myself, how quicker you can with empty and open hands of faith in your desperate need for the Spirit of God to move through your life to say, Spirit, grow in me your fruit to abide in Jesus and Jesus to abide in you as you spend time in prayer, as you spend time in worship, as you spend time following Jesus, as you spend time in God's word, as you spend time in community, as you start practicing the way of Jesus, something happens as you abide in Christ, this fruit bears up in your life. But a reminder that as that singular fruit rises and grows and manifests in in your life, that all nine of these attributes will be present. You see, you can, in the list that we read of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, if you are not a follower of Jesus and if you don't have the Holy Spirit, these things, some of them, not all of them, some of them can already be present in your life. And you look out, there's people in your life, co-workers, family members, friends, people you admire throughout history around the world that you say, my gosh, that is the most patient person I've ever seen and they're not a believer. Or you might say, gosh, that person uh, has come, they've come across so gentle and yet they're not a believer. Well, the truth is, is that you can have these attributes. However, two things. It will always be a shadow, a smaller, a reduced version of the full thing that the Spirit of God can grow up in your life. So you can be loving, but you'll never love at the depth that Christ can love through you without the Holy Spirit. You can be patient, and you might be the most patient person that you you know in your life if you're not a follower of Jesus. And yet that patience can be exponentially multiplied through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this. It is impossible to have all nine attributes that are on this list without the Holy Spirit. You see, you might have people who are kind, but they're not patient. I can think of seasons in my life uh, before I was a follower of Jesus, even now a bit too, because there is this journey of faith of being grown more and more in the image of Christ, where I can be kind to people uh, who deserve it. I can be kind to people who it's easy to be kind to, but the moment I lose my patience is the moment I become impatient and the kindness goes right out the window. Historically, that's me on the 405 freeway. Uh, that's me when I see somebody uh, treating somebody you know, in, in an awful way. I, my, my kindness goes out the window. In those moments, it is not the Spirit of God rising up in my life. It is the works of the flesh, the apostle Paul says, where there can be divisions that grow, where enmity can grow, where judgment can grow. And a sure sign that you are allowing the Spirit of God to have freedom in your life is that all nine of these aspects are growing. Now, one last thing in this introduction is that the fruit of the Spirit is different than the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You hear there the plural nature of gifts. The moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God gives through the power of the Holy Spirit, gifts to believers within the local body of Christ. And there are a variety of gifts. You could almost uh, separate the gifts into two different categories, word and deed. We'll get back to that two phrase in a moment. Uh, There's the word gifts uh, like evangelism. There's the word gifts, such as preaching, exhortation, of prophecy. But there's also the deed gifts of hospitality, of generosity, of mercy. And when we put those two together, it is this great reminder that the local church is made up of a community of people, that makes up members of the body of Christ. And we as the church are continuing the work that Jesus started when Jesus first came in the flesh, though Jesus has always existed, when he came in the flesh, he lived those 33 years, he began to do word and deed works to bring wholeness and healing and salvation to all people who would receive him by faith alone. And yet he was crucified. He was buried, he rose from the grave, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he pours out the Spirit of God to those who put their faith and trust in him to continue the work that he started. So those gifts are, so to speak, doled out so that God can not only build up the body but accomplish the work that God longs for them to do. You might have the gift of evangelism but not the gift of mercy and that's okay because the gifts are plural, God doesn't give all of those gifts to every single person. However, in contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is something that every single follower of Christ, that's something that God longs to see grow in your life. So on this sixth week, we get to goodness. And this remarkable word is in this list of nine. And as we get into goodness, it's a reminder that some Some scholars, some some theologians have categorized these nine gifts into, there's a lot of different ways you can look at it. Some have categorized them into three different categories. Again, we are to grow this singular fruit of the Spirit in our life by giving the room for the Holy Spirit to grow it, but the, the three categories some have said are the first three of love, joy, and peace. That is this inward attitude. It is this inward nature that there's something that happens, that the fruit grows up in us. It's, it's almost like roots that go down under the surface, but then the next three of kindness, of goodness, of faithfulness are when what happens under the surface break through the soil and that's the outward expression of that which is already within. And the same scholars and theologians have said the last three of faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control actually has this vertical, this upward dynamic in our relationship with God. There's a lot of different ways that you can look at it, but I want to key in on this one word, goodness. But a reminder that Jesus came and did remarkable things in both word and deed. You see, there's things that Jesus said coupled with things that Jesus did. And it's so remarkable to see the ministry of Jesus that it wasn't just what he said and it wasn't just what he did, but it was how his words and deeds came together to reveal to us God's heart for humanity. You could say it this way, that wherever Jesus went... We saw the fruit of the Spirit on full display perfectly. And that's God's longing for you and me. Again, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, Christ dwells in us. And the more that we allow Christ to rise up in our life, the more that we die to ourselves and our sinful nature and our wants and our desires, and we allow Christ to to grow in us, to give freedom to Him, to give Him every key in our life, the more we see the perfect Son of God allowing the fruit of the Spirit to to grow in and outward and upward in our life, the more we're gonna see that. And as Jesus uh, spoke in both word and deed, it was a reminder all the way back to the garden where the first humans lived in this perfect relationship with, with God, with each other, with themselves, and with all of creation. And when they chose their way rather than God's way, when in their hearts and minds they dethroned God and enthroned themselves, there was a fracture that happened in the relationship with God, with each other, with themselves and with all of creation. And so there was this this need that arose that never had existed before because humans first lived in perfect relationship with all of those things that I just said. And these needs popped up. And in the deepest need is a need to be in right relationship with God. And the next need is a, is a psychological need to be in wholeness of relationship with oneself. But then it moves down into a relational need to be in right relationship with others. But then as we see throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, there is this ripple effect. It's almost like a, a stone dropped in the water where ripple effects go out. We see that those needs spill out because then there becomes uh, communal and familial needs because families have broken apart. There's a need for families to come back together. There's a communal brokenness and there's a need for the community to come back together. There is a need cross-culturally and cross-ethnically where different people groups become at war with one another and there is division and separation. There's this need for wholeness and unity and love. And in many ways, as we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus is beginning to undo the effects of sin. This is not just salvation to get you into heaven. This is salvation that gets deep down to the word sozo. You've heard Pastor Mike Morgan preach on this word often. This word save or sozo can be translated a variety of ways, but it also means healing. It is this deep sense of a work that Jesus does. In an individual's life, in their relationships, in their family, in their community, in their society, cross-culturally to the ends of the earth. And it's not just for people, but it's all of creation that Jesus is, as he says in the book of Revelation, he is making all things new. And so this goodness can be categorized perhaps in one singular sentence as this. It's living a life that is looking out for the needs of others regardless of the expense. I'll keep coming back to that definition just to repeat one more time. Goodness is looking out for the needs of others regardless of the expense. And as we go through this, if I could, I want to categorize uh, goodness in three things. There's the what of goodness. There's the who of goodness, and finally the how of goodness. Well, what does this goodness look like? The Greek word for goodness that's used here in Galatians 5.22 is agathosain. Uh, It literally means a generosity, a benevolence. This is an outward expression of caring for the other, of providing for the other, of meeting the needs of the other regardless of the expense. And we see this all throughout the ministry of not only Jesus, but we go all the way back to the Hebrew Scriptures, that God is calling God's people to be a people of goodness. So again, what this looks like before we talk about the who, and the how. Well, what does this look like? Well, one of the things that we see throughout the, the Hebrew scriptures uh, God's people were in worship of God and they, they believed in God, and yet after a while they began to forget that their lives were supposed to be marked by goodness, not just with one another, but for the people in their midst who were on the margins of society. And there's this remarkable moment in, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah speaking on behalf of God an instrument in God's hands to to speak inspired by the Holy Spirit. God says to the nation of Israel, I see your fasting, the work that you're doing for me. And yet what you have done is you've, you've trampled the poor. You've oppressed your workers. And all of your worship and all of your fasting isn't pleasing to me because, to paraphrase You no longer have goodness that flows out of your life. You're no longer meeting the needs of those in your midst, regardless of the expense. As Jesus goes throughout his ministry, goodness flowed through him, not just to those that seemingly deserved it, but even for those that didn't, according to society, deserve it at all. Jesus was inviting the people to dinner that the religious leaders would never invite. Jesus was forgiving the sins of those the religious leaders would say, you should never forgive. Jesus was caring for and drawing close to the lepers in a society that was so focused on purity law that those are the people you should never relationally connect to. And Jesus was constantly meeting the felt needs, the real needs, the psychological needs, the emotional needs, the relational needs, the socioeconomic needs, but also most importantly, the the spiritual needs of every single person that Jesus came into contact with. There was this remarkable moment in the, the ministry of Jesus where somebody who as a religious leader, a lawyer actually stood up to test Jesus. I, I want you to go there. This is It gives us a picture of the what of goodness as Jesus tells a parable. We don't believe this actually historically happened. It was a story that Jesus told to illustrate a point. We believe historically that Jesus did tell the story, but let me dive into this. This is Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. This gives us a picture of the, the what of goodness. What what could this look like in our life? As the fruit of the spirit grows in our life that we would be people of goodness, of benevolence, of generosity. Uh, Luke 10, 25 says this, "'Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus.' And he said, "'Teacher,' he said, "'What must I do to inherit eternal life?' He said to him," Jesus responding, "'Well, what is written in the law? What do you read there?' The lawyer answers. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. To paraphrase, Jesus is saying in response to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, it's said in the law, live a life of goodness with God with each other, with your neighbor. But then, the lawyer, verse 29, wanting to justify himself, so fascinating. Uh, There's this sense of motivation of this question here. It's not saying in order to seek to understand, it was wanting to justify himself. He then says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, This is where he gets into one of the most famous parables of all, the parable of the good Samaritan. The Samaritan who was good. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, listen to these characters that come through this story. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, typically morally upright, another cast of character here, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, Jesus then asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. A lot of things to unpack here, but just again to stick with the main point of what does goodness Look like. You see, goodness and mercy are often intermingled with one another. I'm reminded of in the Old Testament, King David says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. In this story, we see not the priest, who typically would be the hero, not the Levite, who typically also would be the hero, but the Samaritan of all people was the one who showed mercy to the person who'd been left for dead, beaten, stripped of his resources in the ditch. Well, what did it look like for him before we get to the who? Take a look. It's obvious here. There is this deep sense that goodness is a gravitational pull towards people who are in need. You see, If goodness is not growing in your life, often the gravitational pull of your life is either yourself or people in your life whom it serves you to be kind to, to be generous to, to be merciful to, or it's people whom it's easy to be kind to and and benevolent to and generous to. But Something happens, supernatural. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you give room for the Holy Spirit to grow the fruit of the Spirit, all nine assets and all nine attributes grow in your life. And one of them is goodness. You will find the gravitational pull of your life. You will be drawn closer to people who are in need. And it could be psychological need. It could be financial need. It could be emotional need. It could be relational need. It could be spiritual need, knowing that all people in some way have some sort of need. And rather than avoiding, like the priest in the story, or the Levite in the story, like the Samaritan, you would be drawn close. And in drawing closer to the person, something happens with your perspective, where you look beyond yourself, you look beyond your schedule. This person, this Samaritan, likely had places to go, people to see, things to do. They are now focused on this person in need. And it says that something happens within them. They are moved to compassion. They begin to, and the Greek word for compassion, it literally means that you suffer with. There's something that happens. There is a transfer that happens. When you have spirit-filled and spirit-guided goodness in your life, where the burden and the need that the person has begins to flow to you. Now, Jonathan Edwards, a great preacher, he gets a bad rap, I think, in some ways in the 21st century. One of the things that he said in his preaching in the 1700s is that you will never bear someone else's burden unless in some way you are a little bit burdened by it. And he goes on and he gives this illustration. Let's say somebody has a log that weighs 100 pounds and you see them walking by and they are straining under the weight of this 100 pound log. And if you walk up to them and if you just tell them, why don't you just adjust it this way? Why don't you carry it this way? In that moment, you are not bearing the burden at all. You might be slowing down. You might think that you're taking the time to help them out, but you are actually doing nothing to help ease their burden until you begin to shoulder some of that yourself. And even if it's one pound, Or five pounds or 10 pounds or 50 pounds or 99 pounds as you begin to bear the burden of the other. You begin to move into this life that Jesus longs for you and for me to experience. And it's impossible without the Holy Spirit because often what happens is we don't want to be burdened by other people. And it's easy to be good towards and generous towards and benevolent towards people whom we don't have to take a burden on ourselves or in our society. This is where it's so key. People can come across as good, but often the motivation is that they know the ROI, the return on the investment, that if I do this good, a greater good will come back to me. That's not the type of Spirit-filled fruit of the spirit goodness that Jesus longs for in our life. The Samaritan draws close, is moved to compassion, and then begins to take upon themselves a remarkable level of burden out of love, out of compassion, out of a sense of goodness that Jesus is making the point that he longs for all of us to do. And without recounting all of this, you can see that there is emotional needs being met. There's physical needs being met. There's uh, safety and security needs being met. There's financial needs being met. This, This Samaritan goes out of their way to be generous, to pour out of their resources, and in doing so, in a sense, takes upon a burden themselves. You know, it reminds me of this great Tim Keller quote. A retired pastor in New York at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, uh, he often equates poverty to a lack of options, and he says that as people perhaps get more resources in their life, one of the the outflows of that is that you get more options. With more resources comes more options of where you can get meals where you can live, where you can provide and receive medical care, where you can get education. And the remarkable thing is that as we get more and more options in our life, we will meet people who have less options in our life. And paraphrasing Jonathan Edwards, he says this, and and this, this was revolutionary for me. He says that if we are truly to be people that live lives of goodness, if we're to be spirit-filled followers of Christ that demonstrate mercy, generosity, and benevolence to people in our life, in those moments, we are actually making the choice to have less choices as we give them more choices. It's like Jonathan Edwards, you're not bearing a burden until you take some of the burden upon yourself. And there is this countercultural movement that scripture calls us to, which is very contrary to secularism, which says you've got to make money for yourself so that you can have more choices, so you can have more options, so that you can do whatever you want. But the gospel says that as you get more resources, it's an opportunity to use those resources to meet the needs of others, regardless of the cost. And this starts with our family. Scripture says that if we don't care for our family and provide for our family, in some ways we are worse off than people who are, people who don't even believe in the existence of God. It literally says that in Scripture. So our primary uh, responsibilities are our family, but it doesn't end there. It spills out upon the broader family of faith. Jesus says, "'The world will know you are my disciples "'because of your love for one another.'" But it's not just loving your brothers and sisters in Christ and meeting the needs of those in the community of faith, but it spills out of this community to our neighbors, to the people we work with, to the people in line at the grocery store, to the least likely people of all. And this is one of the most revolutionary things that everybody in the ancient world in the first century took notice of. You see, the Romans often they were benevolent to the roman poor and the jews often were benevolent to the jewish poor but the christians were benevolent and good to all and it was so revolutionary it was so countercultural people stopped and took notice at how generous and how good the Christians were to all people, regardless of their background, regardless of their political affiliation, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their socioeconomic status. And it became such a problem for the Roman Empire that one of the leaders, one of the rulers, one of the emperors, Julian, had this statewide sponsored program to raise up paganism to compete with the Christianity that was spreading like wildfire. And he invested in the building of temples, pagan temples, and bolstered and tried to do all these things to to bring back Roman paganism because Christianity was spreading everywhere. And he actually, we have this historical document of a letter that Ember Julian wrote. I want you to listen to this. Here's what he said. He says, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of Christianity. He thought it was a superstition. Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of these Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. There is the opportunity for you to live a limitless and boundaryless level of goodness and generosity. It's never gonna come in your own strength. And some of you might be saying, I can't do that. And you're right. And this gets to the who. Who can do this? Well, I find it very fascinating that the person that Jesus chooses to be the hero in the parable that he just tells, isn't the priest, isn't the Levite, is the Samaritan? We have to understand first century cultural understandings and factions. At that time, there perhaps was no greater uh, conflict between people groups in that region than the Jews and the Samaritans. They looked at each other with disdain. They looked at each other as less than themselves themselves. They treated each other like animals, like dogs. They, they reduced the other in their mind and then therefore in their actions. And there was this sense that those two groups never would mix. There was laws against it. There was cultural no- norms that prohibited it. And here Jesus says to a Jewish lawyer of all people, the hero of the story is a Samaritan, the least likely person of all. That's the answer. The least likely person of all is one who can exhibit a level of goodness that is only possible through the power of God. You might come to this moment and you you might say, you don't know my past. Uh, I'm not a good person. Uh, I've treated people so poorly. I don't have it within me. And the answer is you're right. There's nothing inherently in your own strength that can cause you to have this level of goodness, not just to be kind and generous and merciful to those whom you love, who it's easy to, but those whom perhaps don't deserve it? Other than if, and this gets to the how, unless it is Christ in you, the hope of glory, that is doing that work. You see, I often hear people say, you know, I I don't want to be merciful. I don't want to give away uh, to those people uh, unless they are deserving of it. And I hope this cuts to the heart for you. Perhaps you've said this before. You know, I don't want to give my time. I don't want to give my energy. I don't want to give my resources to people who are in need unless they are deserving of it. And that attitude, that perspective actually has nothing to do with the spirit of God allowing goodness to flow through your life. Because consider Jesus, who perfect, who part of the Godhead, the Trinity, eternally loving, eternally holy, eternally beautiful, comes in the flesh and lives the most beautiful, perfect life. And in his life, he constantly reveals to us that he does not come to abolish the law, but he's come to fulfill it. And in doing so, he reveals, the Apostle Paul says, that every single human being on the planet is somebody with sin, that no human being ever measures up. To paraphrase Paul, no human being is ever deserving of the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. And yet still, Jesus comes to humanity and loves those that don't deserve it, lays down his life for all of humanity that doesn't deserve it. And the more that I can realize that I, have a desperate need that I can't fulfill, that only Jesus can. And I actually am not deserving of the extravagant love that cost Jesus' life to give me a right relationship with God, that out of that right relationship with God, I can be whole in my perspective of myself, in my relationships with others, with my family, with my community, with all of society and cross-culturally, that when I realize that I'm not deserving of that and I receive it with gratitude and joy and faith, that gives space and fertile soil for the seed of the Spirit to grow in my life, bearing fruit that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and today, goodness. Friends, as we move out into this world let us be very, very careful that we never limit that which Jesus can do through our life. In doing so, we settle for a shallow or a shadow or counterfeit version of goodness. I want you to think on your own life. You know, who are the people that you are merciful to, kind to, generous to? Likely, if you reflect like I reflect, I have limits to my generosity. I have limits to my mercy. I have limits to my benevolence and through the power of the Holy Spirit Jesus wants to break through those walls and as we move throughout this world how remarkable would it be if the words of Julian from nearly 2,000 years ago were said about Christians today it's unstoppable he said because their love their charity their benevolence, their goodness extends to all people. Let's let that start with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that whenever you moved and lived through both word and deed, you demonstrated on full display what the fruit of the Spirit looked like. We see your goodness on full display to every single person you met, individually, to the crowds, to all of humanity, to all of creation. And so in this moment, for those of us that have put our faith in you, we receive that again in our hearts and our minds. We long to let that fill us up with your goodness, with your mercy, with your charity. Holy Spirit, would you grow in us this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, along with all the other eight nine in total, so that that fruit would bear more fruit, knowing that every single fruit has a seed, a seed that can grow to more fruit. We know, God, that you call us to be part of your multiplication of love, of faith, of goodness around the globe. May it start in us in this moment. In Jesus' name I pray and we say together, amen.